Good morning, good morning. All right, so we're going to uh, get into the Word today. We're going to start in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1 through 3. Um, so we're going to talk about a theme today. Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word. Uh, Break it open with us, Holy Spirit. Uh, Let it go deep. We know that you delight yourself in those that look for the riches in your word. And so we pray for light to illuminate the study of your word this morning. And and you lead us. You you take us where you want to go this morning to anchor it, to make it go deep. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so I know we're... Many of us are, are all about knowledge and being smart and learning things. We live in a day and age when, uh, when that's pretty easy. Uh, anything that you want to learn, is, it, it's at our fingertips. And so um, we're, not, we're not knocking knowledge per se, but we're putting it into perspective according to what the Word teaches us today. And I want to start, like I said, from 1 Corinthians chapter 8 verse 1 through 3. This is Paul speaking. Now concerning things sacrificed to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. I love how he says that. We know that we all have knowledge. I I get a sense that there's probably a little bit of sarcasm there. Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. If anyone supposes that he knows anything, he has not yet known as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by him. And I love what Rachel was um, highlighting in that song. Um, You're all I want. And she turned the tables. Felt like the Lord was impressing upon her to turn the tables. And we're going to talk about that, the Lord turning the tables and knowing us. And it's a beautiful thing. Um, But I love this. So so we're going to break this down a little bit and talk about it. Really what I want to do is look at some specific interactions that Jesus has with the Pharisees to set some things up to see the dichotomy and the contrast, and it's displayed really well. So I'm going to be going through a, a, a lot of different places in the Gospels to highlight that. Uh, the first one, I'll set it up with a little bit more time, but I do want to try to take, uh, go through that a little quicker because I don't, I don't want to bog it down for time's sake today. But let's take a look at this verse that we just read. Again, I get the feeling that Paul here um, is, is being a little sarcastic. We all, we know that we all have knowledge. Um, knowledge makes arrogant. It's so interesting he says that because they know already we're already probably pulling on a bunch of places in the scripture that would tell us that knowledge is a beautiful thing, the wisdom of the Lord, correct? But we're going to see that, that there's, there's an emphasis here. But love edifies, and that's the key to unlocking this. Love edifies. So there can be knowledge without love. We can have a lot of knowledge, important facts, not necessarily faulty knowledge or inaccurate knowledge, but knowledge uh, from an intellectual standpoint, from experiential uh, things that in our life. But we can lack love, and it's as if we have nothing. And Paul tells us this in 1 Corinthians 13 too, those verses that we know so, so well. How is it possible we could have knowledge, even all knowledge, 
but yet without love, we have nothing. And I would even say that you can be a sincere lover of God in hot pursuit of the Lord, but not be the sharpest tool in the shed. And you have everything. Um, and, and again, I'm not, I'm not condoning ignorance here. You know what I'm saying. But you see it flipped there. And the emphasis is on love. Jesus sets this up for us so that we can get a clear picture of building our lives in the love of God and being careful not to get conceited in knowledge. Because we can, we can see this, and, and, and I, I want to pull some examples from scriptures with the Pharisees, but I want us, I'm not going to, there's a bunch of examples we could give. We talk, we're going to talk about the traditions of the Pharisees, the oral traditions, the things that they were doing to invalidate the law of God, the things that they had, customs, very important things, things that they could sit there and open up the scriptures and say to you, but it says here, and therefore we do this and this, right? They could line it up, and we have that same uh, way of doing things even today. So we have traditions. We have things that we do, things that we think, man, that's the way I've always heard it. It's got to be scriptural, and we can bypass uh, love in the midst of just knowing something and going headstrong, knowing something. And it can look like overlooking someone. It can look like judging someone. It can look like beating someone down and not being sensitive to what's really taking place in their life. But love is meant to build up and edify. And so sometimes there's a knowing that we know in laying that to the side to follow what the Holy Spirit is illuminating, which needs to take place in the person's life in love. So... Let's look at this first example uh, in Matthew chapter 12, interaction, and and obviously there's so many, so many interactions, and we'll pull a a few today. Um, So Jesus has in Matthew 12 an interaction with uh, the Pharisees. Verse 1, at that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples became hungry and began to pick the heads of grain and eat. That sounds pretty innocent, right? But when the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look, your disciples do what is not lawful to do on a Sabbath. But he said to them, Have you not read what David did when he became hungry? So another thing about knowledge, and Paul says this to us, You may think you know, but you don't know as you ought to know. And in life, the Lord will humble us, I'm saying this from my own experience, where you really think you know something, and you think you carry a certain weight or authority in knowing it, and you get humbled pretty quickly in the presence of somebody else who you did not expect had that kind of knowledge. There's always knowledge to counter knowledge. Therefore, if we think we have all the cards... We are now starting to fall and slip into that place of arrogance, and it's easy to be humbled in that place. And Jesus does it to the Pharisees here. They think they have him according to the law, not even a tradition, but according to the law, and it's, it's their perspective of it. But he counters 
Have you not read what David did when he became hungry, he and his companions, how he entered the house of God and they ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those with him, but for the priests alone? Or have you not read, and I love this, and we'll talk about this, or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath the priests in the temple break the Sabbath and are innocent? If you're not familiar with what he's saying there, it's just the fact that priests are working on the Sabbath, right? There's a lot to do. They're working, working, working. So technically they're breaking the Sabbath, but it was allowed, obviously, because they're Levites ministering before the Lord, right? So let, this is really important. We see his connection here. So... Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath the priests in the temple break the Sabbath and are innocent? But I say to you that something greater than the temple is here. But if you had known, if you had knowledge, if you had true knowledge, if you had known what this means, that I desire compassion and not a sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. He's saying something greater than the temple the representation, the very representation of the Father is here in your midst. And you can't see it because of your arrogance. Because you're, you're interpreting the law some way. But I'm telling you, and Jesus goes on to say, for the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. So if the Lord of the Sabbath wants to ordain and establish his innocent fishermen, semi-ignorant semi disciples, and set them up as priests, I think he has the absolute right to do that. Therefore, if they are hungry <laughs> and they're taking grain, I think there's an allowance for what's taking place here in Jesus' own words, but they could not see that in their ignorance. They really thought they had a platform here. He goes further on in this same situation, and he, he amps it up. And takes a person that needs healing with a withered hand and heals them on the Sabbath. Of course, this creates a huge stir. But I love what Jesus quotes from Isaiah in the same chapter 12, verse 18. Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him. And he shall proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel, nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A battered, and this is what I want to focus, a battered reed he will not break off, and a smoldering wick he will not put out until he leads justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. So he angers the Pharisees here, but Jesus says, this is my calling that I would look at the outcast, the rejected, the broken, the hurting, and I would edify them in love and build them up. This is my calling to bring hope. And you're missing it completely because you don't have love. You have the law, you have your traditions, very knowledgeable of it, but your knowledge has made you arrogant because there's a vacuum of my love. We see this further on um, when Jesus rebukes the Pharisees in John chapter 5. You don't have to go there. I'll just pull out some things real quick from that. 
starting with verse 38. You search the scriptures. He's talking to the Pharisees again. I'm sorry, you do not have his word abiding in you. Well, how can that be? The Pharisees are in the word more than anyone else. But he says, his word is not abiding in you, for you do not believe him who sent him whom he sent. Verse 39, you search the scriptures, but you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me, and you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. I do not receive glory from men, but I know you, that you do not have the love of God in yourselves. I know you. So there's a knowing that the Lord has of all of us. For those that love, what does that knowing look like? But for those that are closed off and deceived in their own arrogance because of their, their um, pride in what they've accomplished in, in knowledge, what they think they know. God, is through Jesus, is saying, but I know you, and you don't have the love of God in you. They're searching the scriptures. They should know these things. They're searching the scriptures for eternal life, and they're missing that eternal life has just showed up on their doorstep right before their very eyes. In John chapter 7, Jesus uh, declares to everyone at the end of the Feast of Tabernacles that if anyone is thirsty, they can come to him and drink. People immediately start declaring, well, certainly this means he's the prophet. It angers the Pharisees again. And all the Pharisees can do is get hung up on a fact that, well, wait a sec, he can't be the prophet, he can't be the Christ, because the Christ doesn't come out of Galilee. We know this. Duh. We know this, except for a really important fact that they didn't know. They thought they knew, but they did not know as they ought to know, as Paul said. Therefore, they missed that opportunity when Jesus says, if you are thirsty, I will edify you and build you up with the love of God, and it will be rivers of living water flowing out of you. So we, are we looking for these opportunities for the same Jesus to speak through us that very way? Or are there things similar to the Pharisees that we get hung up on? And again, it's easy to look at the Pharisees and say, well, that's pretty radical. Um, their approach, their perspective, they're hung up on certain things. We, of course, aren't like that. Right? We don't have these. And again, I'm, I, I'm not going to pull out examples we could be here all day with our own examples. We could be here with our own traditions, with our own little things. And some of us may think, well, that's super minor, right? But that's not the point of how minor or how major. The point is what happens when it begins to shut our heart in a place that's devoid of the love of God. So it gives us preconceptions when we deal with someone. We think to ourselves, surely this homeless person can't teach me anything about God. And so it limits how we respond and interact with that person because we have a set of traditions. We, they may not even be stuff that we pull from the word, but there's already a few things we rattle off in our head. I'm not going to give them money because they're going to do this, do this. I'm not going to, you know, whatever, this and this. Uh, they're out there with their sign, um, wasting people's time, la-da-da-da-da. 
They don't need me to interact with them in any way. But love edifies, knowledge makes arrogant, and we miss. In our arrogance, we miss divine, God-ordained moments. I had a situation when I was coming. I was in Orlando, and I was coming from training from the gym. And it was always a long ride home, hour and a half, two hours. So I didn't want to waste any time, but I was hungry, so I went through the Wendy's. Um, this was years ago. And that, <laughs> I don't do that anymore. <laughs> Broccoli, stuff like that. But in those days, I stopped for a combo meal. It was probably a large, too. Um, but at the end of the drive through Flanking me with no way to exit was a homeless person staring at me as I'm coming up. And, I, and guys, I'm going to be honest with you. I was upset. I was like, come on. You're cherry picking this situation. Like, you know, give me some options. I can't go backward. And if I just barrel through, you know. Um, so I, I was irritated. And I got, I got up and he came up to the car. I couldn't even really kind of pull out without him immediately coming up to the car. And so I never carried cash. I had $5, and I felt, okay, $5, just give it to this guy. And I, I really gave it kind of like begrudgingly. <laughs> even I even had the, I, I'm sure he could tell easily I was very irritated. And I'm going to tell you something. You may find this very hard to believe, because I did. He went from looking like maybe a semi-kind-of-drunk homeless person grabbing it, eyes opening wide, looking straight at me, and saying this, I see what you did, and I know you didn't want to do it. But my son, I love you. I know the thoughts in your heart. I know what you're struggling with, and I'm here for you. I, the hair almost came out of my arms. He told me thoughts that nobody, the night before, nobody knew. Nobody, 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 nobody knew. Thoughts, deep internal thoughts. He read my mail, told me that, and he said, but you are blessed with that little $5 bill, but you are blessed. I was in tears. I had to pull over. I couldn't finish, couldn't even eat the combo. I eventually ate it. But take, take what you will from that. But I knew in my heart I had potential. It was the Lord being gentle, loving, edifying me, saying, look, I am everywhere. I am wanting to speak to you and work and not just edify you, but through obedience and getting that selfishness and pride and arrogance that you know out of the way so that others can be blessed and others can be transformed. Amen? That's the type of followers and disciples we want to be. And unfortunately, we go on with more of what's happening with the Pharisees here. So Jesus has lunch. I love this. I can just picture it in um, Luke chapter 11. Um, we're going to go there to that, so you can open to that. And, I, and I'm just going to pull some pieces from it. But what I love is Jesus and this Pharisee decide to have lunch together. It's just like, I don't know, I just find that humorous. Um, so Jesus comes to the house, 
And he immediately goes and reclines at the table. We, li- we lived, you guys know this, most of you know this, we lived in Israel for a couple years. Lord, do you remember that, um, do you remember that place we went to, um, that, that Bedouin restaurant? And you sit on the floor and there's uh, pillows, and this stuff looks like it'd been there for a while. It looks like it probably was there during Jesus' day. Like, he probably, <laughs> he probably sat on these pillows. But it's cool. It's like, oh, man, cultural. So we're, we're sitting down. We got so sick, like unbelievably sick, some kind of bacteria food poisoning. We almost died. It was so bad. But that place was supposed to be really good, so I'm not going to tell you the place. I don't remember it. But my point is we were reclining. We were there at the table. The table was low. We were just chilling, right? So I kind of get this deal that Jesus comes right in, just like chills. And it shocks and surprises. So listen, listen to how it's, it's written here. It shocks and surprises this Pharisee. Verse 37. Now, when he had spoken, a Pharisee asked him to have lunch with him. And he went in and reclined at the table. When the Pharisee saw it, he was surprised that he had not first ceremonially washed before the meal. It says he was surprised. We don't know. I'm thinking that Jesus is reading his thoughts because we see that. Jesus is doing that all the time. I'm thinking he's, he's reading his thoughts because the rebuke is so harsh, so harsh. It almost seems kind of overboard in regards to what's happening here. There are deeper heart issues that he knows about this Pharisee to be known by God. If you have the love of God in you and he knows you, what is that like? Maybe a homeless person saying things that you never even knew anyone knew. But if you don't have the love of God and Jesus peers into your heart, what are the things that he's saying to us? So the Pharisee, whatever is going on internally, Jesus immediately, but the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees, clean the outside of the cup and of the platter, but inside of you, you are full of robbery and wickedness. That's hardcore. That is harsh. He wouldn't have said that without justification. And it's interesting because if you go to John 10, you don't necessarily have to go there. I just want to draw this this, uh, connection. When he's talking about his sheep, hearing his voice, he's the good shepherd. He says, all those that came before me, they're thieves and robbers. Uses the same term. And I think he's making that connection. There are those who are supposed to be shepherding the flock of God, but they're thieves and robbers. They may know the law. They may look the part, but inside they're dead. Their cup is clean on the outside, and they're dead inside. And Jesus knows it, right? And this is interesting. You can, he, he goes on with this long-listed rebuke. You foolish ones, did not he who made the outside make the inside also, but give that which is within as charity, and then all things are clean for you. And he goes on, and is very harsh, and I love it because the um, lawyer jumps in. And I find it very comical. But he, one of the lawyers says to Jesus in reply, Teacher, when you say this, you insult us too. And Jesus says, I haven't even gotten started 
<laughs> insulting you. And then he goes after the lawyer. So at first he's like, you Pharisees, this and that. Then he's like, let's change it up, lawyer. If you want some of this, you want me to know you the way I know the Pharisees, then I'm willing to do that for you. And he goes after the lawyer, and he says to the lawyer, woe to you lawyers, in verse 52, for you have taken away the key of knowledge, the key of knowledge. You yourselves did not enter, and you hindered those who were entering. You have the key of knowledge, the ability, the capability to edify and build up in love. You don't even enter into that yourself, and you block people from entering into it. True knowledge. Because of their arrogance, based on what they think they know, they think they know, and they do not know as they ought to know. Moving on. Let's actually, before we move on, that cup and platter stood out to me. We can come to a place where, where when we become arrogant in our own knowledge, it's like having this thin layer, beautiful polished veneer on the outside. And that looks very presentable and appealing maybe even to some extent. But it's drawing people into ourself and our inside is desolate. Because when we're seeking our knowledge, it's not birthed in a place of genuine love. There's other motives there. There's other issues. There's our own hang-ups. There's our refusal to yield and to surrender our heart to the Lord and to create some image of ourselves out of insecurity to maintain this perception so that everyone thinks we're something. And so that cup can look real good on the outside. But on, on the inside, it's dead. In Matthew 15, again, the Pharisees attack Jesus. And you can read it 1 through, one through 20. I'm, I'm going to highlight um, 1 through 9. But again, he's being attacked. Jesus is being attacked. And it's concerning his disciples breaking the tradition again of washing their hands before eating bread. And this isn't the type of your mom told you to wash your hands. Your mom tells you to wash your hands, wash your hands. Out of the restroom, out of restaurant, you wash your hands. Don't just listen to how it says employees. It should be everyone. So just accept that. But that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about a tradition. So let's talk about the traditions. So there was the law that the, the lawyer, by, uh, by the way, a lawyer wasn't like an attorney. I mean, they were, but they were specifically a religious lawyer. They were experts in the law experts. Just like we expect any attorney today, if they're going to argue a case, they better know what they're doing, correct? Um, they were experts of the law, so they really should know. So when Jesus came after him, you can see uh, why he came after him in such a harsh way, because they really should know. And so here, um, the Pharisees are saying that it's, it's our oral traditions that are being broken. So that's a difference. You see that in the word with these interactions with Pharisees. There's times when Jesus is supposedly breaking the traditions of the elders, the oral traditions, okay? And the rabbinical teaching around that was that the rabbis felt that they needed to make 
hedges around the law. So an oral tradition was their way of creating a buffer so that they didn't even have to worry about um, the people that, that were, they were teaching the law to getting too close to breaking the law. They had this nice little buffer. Think of it as Mount Sinai. You know, Moses is on the mountain, and anything that touches the mountain is going to die. And the people see the interaction of what happens with Moses, and they're like, forget it, Moses. You deal with God. We trust you. You do it. We don't want to do it. So these hedges, these zones get created around the laws. So now they're not even interacting with God in true knowledge of what that law is. They're trusting somebody else, a tradition given by another person to help keep them safe. Yeah, secondhand, right? And, and God is calling them to know him intimately themselves. But they start to create these hedges and they get wider and wider because it's easier to maintain that than it is to allow the people to get messy in their pursuit of God, right? And so this is what's happening. It's an oral tradition. It's not even a law. And so they come at Jesus, and you can read here in verse 1, then some Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. And he answered and said to them, why do you yourselves transgress the commandment of God? For the sake of your tradition. Then he hits them with this. I love it. For God said, honor your father and mother, and he who speaks evil of father or mother is to be put to death. Now that's the law. That's not an oral tradition. Jesus is quoting the law. But you say, whoever says to his father or mother, whatever I have that would help you has been given to God. So they're working full-time ministry, and they're in the temple, and they're in the, the synagogue, and they're doing the work of the Lord, and their parents are in need, Okay? I can't help you, mom, dad. All my stuff belongs to God. That's literally what's taking place here, right? Convenient, yeah. So Jesus is picking up on this, and he says, you're actually invalidating the word of God for your tradition, you hypocrites. Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you. And I want to read directly from Isaiah on this. Jesus quotes it, but I want to read directly from Isaiah 29, 13 through 14. This is what Jesus quotes. Then the Lord said, because this people draw near with their words and honor me with their lip service, but they remove their hearts from me, and their reverence for me consists of tradition learned by rote. Therefore, behold, I will once again deal marvelously with this people, wondrously marvelous, and the wisdom of their wise men will perish. The wisdom of their wise men will perish. And the discernment of their discerning men will be concealed. So Jesus is telling them, there is the knowledge of God that will cover the earth. And the work that I'm about to do will usher in a whole entire paradigm shift for how the bruised reeds, the broken reeds, the smoldering wicks interact with God. 
That's what Jesus is getting at. And he's telling them, you were meant to be the ones to minister and to bring that truth to them. But in your arrogance, you've blocked the way for yourself and for others. But Jesus is coming to break down the walls. And so ultimately we see the Pharisees were more like clanging symbols who boasted of possessing knowledge but did not have the love of God in them. But for us, what's the lesson for us to learn here? What can we walk away with? Well, we need to understand that Jesus is the key to true knowledge. It's through him, knowing him, understanding his words, that we truly come to a place of true knowledge that's rooted and grounded in love. So when we look at how to apply this, we think of the bankruptcy of love that the Pharisees were experiencing. Pursuing knowledge without pursuing Jesus is meaningless. It's going to lead to conceit. But as we pursue Jesus wholeheartedly in his love, we are filled with the knowledge of God. Remember from Isaiah 11, 1 through 3, that Jesus is anointed and he operates in the spirit of knowledge. We read it here. Then a shoot will spring forth from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not, and I love this part, he will not judge by what his eyes see, nor make a decision by what his ears hear. He has all knowledge. He's operating in the spirit of knowledge, yet he's set in his way to not judge by what his eyes see, nor make a decision by what his ears hear, but how often do we judge by what our eyes see and by what we hear? But Jesus is giving us the example of how to operate. Jesus gives us his Holy Spirit. So in John chapter 14, verse 26, but the helper of the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. And then also, 1 John 2, 27, as for you, the anointing which you received from him abides in you and you have no need for anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things, but as his anointing teaches you about all things and is true and is not a lie, and just as it has taught you, you abide in him. It can't happen separately. So as the Holy Spirit teaches us all things, we need to be in a place of abiding in Jesus. Proverbs puts it, puts it this way, to delight in the fear of the Lord. This is the beginning of knowledge. We begin to understand the knowledge of God when we come into that place of worship, of reverence. And we may get different uh, pictures in our head about fear, but I like to think of it this way. Moses was pursuing God. He wanted to see God's face. He wanted more of the Lord. And God, Mount Sinai, said, okay, I can do that, 
but I'm going to hide you in the cleft of the rock because if you see me, you'll die. And so we think, oh, fear. I think sometimes like we think about that and we're like, oh, we can't be afraid of God. And so we try to minimize it or relate to it a different way. It's awe and reverence. And I like that. It's beautiful. But if I were Moses, if I were in my home and I was praying and I said, God, I want to see your face, and all of a sudden I hear this thundering voice. And he says, okay, I'm about to show up. I'm going to stick you in the corner. If you turn around, you're going to die. I have, but I love you, and I can't wait to be with you. I would have, I think, I'd be pretty afraid. In, in, in the corner, as the Lord thunders through my home, if I look, I'm gone. So when we think of fear, let's not, let's not, oh, it's in this place. We know Jesus said, fear not, right? We get that. But there is a place of being in the presence of the Lord, knowing in our heart who he is, knowing that I would rather please him than do anything else in life, that he is my Lord and my master. I belong to him more than anything else. If we come and abide in that place, then knowledge begins to flourish, true knowledge. The anointing starts to teach me things. I start to understand things that I didn't know before. When I see people, I start to see the way Jesus sees. And just a little response, a little remark about their day, rooted in that, could set them on a completely different trajectory in the rest of the day, being edified, built up, being strong in the faith because we decided to be in that place with the Lord and we dared to speak the things that we, we felt the Holy Spirit teaching us or saw the Holy Spirit teaching us or read the Holy Spirit teaching us. Now we can communicate the type of genuine love that edifies. And so I want to leave you with this as we talk about true knowledge, pursuing the Lord, edifying, love edifies, Empty knowledge that leads to arrogance um, is just going to cause harm, and it's meaningless. It's like having nothing in life. But having the knowledge of God, now this is something that Paul encourages us. That through the power and the ministry of the Holy Spirit, we can be filled with all knowledge. He brings this out in Romans 15, verse 14. He brings it out in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 5, and then 2 Corinthians 6, verse 6. So knowledge is a good thing when you're rooted in this. And we see in Ephesians 3, we know this so well, verse 16 through 20, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend there's the key. With all the saints, what is the breadth and length and height and depth? And to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge. Amen. That you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Amen? And more so, verse 20, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think. 
according to the power that works within us. Hosea says it this way when he's calling wayward Israel back in chapter 6, verse 3. So let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. His going forth is as certain as the dawn. And he will come to us like rain, like the spring rain watering the earth. Paul says in Colossians 2 that Christ himself is the true knowledge of God's mystery. And all treasures of wisdom and of knowledge are hidden in Christ. So if we have Christ, if we get Christ, we have the riches, the hidden treasures of knowledge. So in the end, the tragedy about the Pharisees is that the knowledge they acquired was devoid of God's love. It prevented them from seeing the true knowledge of God that was standing right in front of them. Are we spending more time with Jesus than we are acquiring knowledge? Daniel prophesied about our day, saying that knowledge would increase. We have all the knowledge in the world at our fingertips. But are we a beautifully polished cup on the outside that is completely empty of the love of God on the inside? Worship team can come back up. And I want to leave you with these last two verses, which are so powerful, and will lead into worship. From First and Second Corinthians. First, let's go to Second Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. It says this, For God, who said, Light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. To give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. And finally, 1 Corinthians 13, 12. For we now, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then, face to face. Now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, Paul was a Pharisee of Pharisees. And he knew this. I find it fitting that he was the one that drew our attention to this in such a powerful way. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I also have been fully known. You and I are fully known. The more we love, the more we grow in love, the more we pursue love, the more we get in the presence of Jesus face to face, the more we know. And that sounds like a commercial after school in the 80s. But that would make a good commercial, amen? amen. So that's it. Um, maybe uh, Pastor Tony, can you pray and we'll we'll do some worship? Amen. Hey, I want you. I want you to think about something as you're doing this, because uh, this love has to be practical, right? A theoretical love is, you know, annoying. So, because I'm really good at theoretical love. Um, 
So the, I love that the context of this story in, in 1 Corinthians 8 is about meat sacrificed to idols. What you need to understand is there's a bunch of uh, Christians going, hey, I'm getting invited to dinner with my neighbor, but they're serving me bowel meat or Diana meat, you know, and what do I do about that? And Paul's basically saying in this passage, um, well, you could lead with that. You could say, hey, I can't go to dinner because you're serving evil meat. Uh, and that's probably the extent of the relationship you're going to have with this person. Or uh, you could just go to dinner, know that it doesn't matter that you know it's evil meat. You, it doesn't hurt you. Uh, go eat their meat. And uh, when they, uh, and when you love them and edify them, and they go, uh, hey, why are you so loving? You can go. Uh, well, it's, you know how you worship Baal or Diana and they help you? Well, I worship Jesus and he makes me like this. And that's really all you got to say at that point, isn't it? So in other words, uh, I love this teaching. I love what Jerry said. We don't, we don't, we just don't lead with our knowledge. We lead with love. There'll be time for your knowledge. You can tell them, you know, Baal and Diana aren't all that. Uh, once they know you love them. Amen? Amen. Amen.